we're talking about the exponential nature of technology and things like that, we're often talking about Moore's Law. But this actually happened faster. We, we went from, you know, it cost in 2001, $100 million to sequence the human genome. Now we're bringing that cost down to less than $1,000. Things have been exponential for a really long time. It's just only now we're starting to feel the actual effects of it, of things moving so fast that we actually feel like it's starting to get out of our control. Welcome, Jeff. So, how are things? Things are well. Uh, thank you for having me back again. Yeah, no, looking forward to having another discussion. Yeah, Jeff's already alluded to it there. we This is the second time we've spoken to Jeff on the podcast, so we'll put a link in the episode description to the previous episode. Uh, we'll discuss a few similar themes and ideas, uh, so if anyone wants to refer back to that original interview, they can do so there. Um, I want to start with a, an intro question. So this will be a nod to uh, one of the focuses of today's interview, and then we'll circle back and cover the more foundational stuff, you know, what is visual capitalist, that sort of thing, because I want to introduce that publisher to, to some of the listeners that won't have heard of it. But as I say, before we do, to what extent is technological innovation gaining momentum, and are we in the exponential age? What's your take on that? I think it's a great question. I, I think that everybody is feeling it now. We're starting to see that exponential aspect of things moving forward. I think if you were to talk to uh, people in older generations, I, I'm sure that if you compare that back to their childhood and, and the rate at which it felt like things would have been moving back then, I think that it's uh, comparatively different. Um, I, I guess the one probably difference that I would have with some people that would uh, talk about the exponential age and, and sort of define it as, as only right now is I would actually say that if you think about a hockey stick type graph, like an exponential graph, it actually, mm. it feels like it's moving very slowly at the beginning, right? Um, it, it goes like this for a very long time before it goes like this. And I would argue that you know, I think that human progress, like if you look at a human population graph, it's very similar, right? It's very low for a very long time, and all of a sudden it just catapults up. And, I, and so I think all these things kind of go together. And so in, in that sense, I think we've actually, things have been exponential for a really long time. It's just only now we're starting to feel the actual effects of it, of things moving so fast that we actually uh, feel like it's um, starting to get out of our control, which as in terms of uh, you know human progress and and wealth and building technologies to help us, you know that's that's a good thing for the most part. But um, but it does feel like all of a sudden it's um, you know unchained basically. Whereas if you go back fifty years ago, it would be decades between major developments. Whereas now it feels like things are changing every month. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, AI and kind of the onset of that technological trend has, has a massive part to play in that. But as I mentioned at the start of the interview, we'll, we'll get back into that and uncover um, some of the, the stuff that uh, Jeff said there in more detail. But before we do, I just want to take a step back and introduce Visual Capitalist to any listeners that haven't heard of you. So uh, perhaps you can sum up Visual Capitalist's mission statement. What's, what's the publisher's main aim? Yeah, so our goal is to make uh, data and information more accessible. And so the way that we do that and the way that we find that has been sort of one of the best ways to, uh, to accomplish this mission is to take 
I mean, obviously there's lots of information out there, a lot of, a lot of data for people to understand. And so what we do is we take that data and we visualize it in a compelling way that people can look at and understand and, and get stuff out of. And, um, and, and then that way people can actually comprehend the data intuitively and, and make something out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Opta are a big, um, proponent of, of visual capitalist data. We've got a lot of your data actually in your infographics on our X feed. Um, so if people want an introduction into the stuff that you do, we pick out some of the best stuff that you do and, and link our relevant articles to it. So people can see that there or of course go to the visual capitalist website. But another new way they can interact with that data is of course your new app, Voronoi. So. I I have had a play around on the app. I downloaded it a few days ago, but perhaps you can kind of give us an idea of how this app is helping kind of you in, and your readers and your consumers in pursuit of the mission that you just discussed, but also just try and give us the, the elevator pitch. Yeah, so it, it's um, it, it follows a similar mission. I, I think it just expands it significantly. Um, on, on the app, it's not just visualizations from us and, and data discovery from us. It's also other entities as well. And so the goal is just to create an ecosystem where everybody can come together and, um, and put their uh, insights in one place for people to view and discover. And I think that you know, right now it's, it's quite a, it's still quite modest, but in the future, we're hoping to have, you know, thousands of different, uh, people that create stuff like us to have, have their information there for people to discover. And I think if that's the case, then I think we're going to be able to have data on pretty much everything. And, um, and that's going to allow people to really, um, you know, learn, uh, find out things in their field that are, you know, important and cutting edge. Um, for me, I just is something that didn't exist, so I want to create it, which is a place where you can uh, casually discover interesting things. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, you do find yourself sort of browsing down the feed and stumbling across some of the most kind of interesting graphics and data-led pieces that that you will have seen. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll put a link to that in the episode description, or at least your your product page on your website where people can get more detail. There's a few things you touched on in in both of your pre previous answers that I think are a good way into discussing signals, which is of course. The subject of your your book, um, and that's where we're going to focus on today's interview. But really, the idea uh, behind Signals is trying to kind of identify interesting trends and understand their socioeconomic impact. But perhaps more than ever, it's, it's getting pretty difficult to discern proper true signals, things that can actually inform change from noise, peripheral kind of trends or macroeconomic um reverberations that exist around those signals distinguishing between those two distinct things is a really difficult thing to do visual capitalists help to do that but why now why now more than ever is that such a difficult thing to to achieve yeah so so we see this as the result of the fact that there's so much more data and information out there than there ever has been before and it's not to say that that's a good or a bad thing it's just a reality that um you know, if you're trying to understand the world and you have so much information as a potential input into your brain, uh, you're not going to be able to compute all. Like humans are just not built for that, right? Um, we're kind of linear creatures, and uh, when we have all so much uh, to try and uh, to, to bring in, and, and, and so much has changed, um, 
by the way, we were talking about exponential charts. Well, data follows a similar chart, right? The amount of data that's created and replicated. And that's one of the charts that we open the book with. Um, and, and if you go back 20, 30 years, the amount of data that exists in the world was mere fractions of, of what there is today. So, um, so yeah, how do, how do humans compute that? How do they make sense of that? And so our, our thought process was with sig- signals, Instead of uh, highlighting every single trend that exists, which there are obviously many, many, many trends, what are the trends that are um, almost impossible to argue against uh, from, from a business and, and uh, social and, and economic kind of context? What are the things that are happening in the world that are it's really hard to refute that it's happening when you look at the data? And so our criteria for this was that the trend has to be happening for a really long period of time leading up to it. it has to be predicted by many sources to be continuing to happening it has to have a wide range of effects on business and society and culture and so on and um, and just those few criteria actually cut out a bunch of the um, a bunch of the noise right there, or just trends that we didn't feel were necessarily going to keep going I, I think um, a good one that we cut out of the book, uh, was like, it was on the, on the cutting room floor was, um, it was crypto. And I love, I love crypto. I love decentralization. I love everything about that industry. But from our research, we were having trouble finding something that was really consistent to show you that over time, um, this is becoming, you know, more, and, and that may yet come in the next little bit here, but we ended up cutting it out of the book and then, Within the next year, you had, um, you know, SBF and and the and the downfall of different exchanges and stuff like this. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a really exciting area, but it's it's hard to say that this is like a um, a completely fundamental trend that I think is going to that is on projected on a certain pace that is going to impact a bunch of other things. I think it's coming to that now, but um, but at the time two years ago when we we published the book, I think it was um, it, it made sense, but. That was the challenge with the book is like, how do you, how do you know what to keep and what to cut? And you had to really think hard about is, 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 does crypto fall in the same category as something like an aging population? An aging population is no one can argue against that, right? We're, we're seeing it across the world from every metric. If you're looking at median age, if you're looking at any of these metrics, uh, if you're looking at where they're projected to go by the United Nations, the world is just getting older. It's just a simple fact. Hmm. Yeah, got it. Um, and I think you've already touched on the answer to both of these questions, but I want a definition for what is a signal range and what is the signal to noise ratio, just because I'm going to reference that in relation to two themes as we progress through the interview. So perhaps you can tackle the first of those. Yeah, so through, throughout the book, um, we wanted to have something that told people, is this trend fairly isolated or is it something that has a really wide range of impacts where it's going to touch on so many different areas of the world. And so for that, we use the concept of signal range. Uh, the higher that number, basically the wider the implications of a trend are. So I, I referenced the aging population trend earlier. And that's a classic example of something that just impacts everything, right? It impacts financial markets. It impacts governments and their budgets. It impacts um, industry from the perspective of 
Uh, there's going to be businesses that are catering to this, uh, to, to an aging population. It impacts healthcare. I mean, there's, you could just go on and on about all the areas that that's going to have an impact. Um, whereas there are other trends in the book that are a little bit more isolated and they're much, much more, they're, they will have wide reaching impacts, but in this one narrow space or something like that. Right. And, um, and so the other concept that we have is, is a signal to noise ratio. And this is more geared towards, um, you know, I, I referenced earlier that one, one thing that the book is really trying to do is it's trying to, uh, suss out what, which trends are, um, the clearest and most irrefutable and, and that kind of thing. And the signal to noise ratio is basically looking at, how much clarity is there in a particular signal versus how many sort of different expert uh, projections and opinions are kind of going different ways that are kind of interfering with that signal. And so that's, it's just kind of a way to, um, to highlight an aspect of certainty in these types of projections that we have in the book. Um, I, I think certain signals are much clearer where, Again, I, I think the the aging population trend is just the clearest example of this, and that's why it's the very first in the book. Um, from a signal to noise ratio standpoint, I I've, I haven't seen very much, if at all, uh, from anyone that has any level of expertise that suggests that um, the world is not going to continue aging for at least the next. 40 years. There are some different projections past that where we kind of peak in population and stuff like that. But, um, but you know, it's pretty clear that that's happening. Whereas with some of these other trends, there is a little bit of, uh, a little bit more, um, noise and that there are other opinions of, of, of you know, experts and, and very well-respected people that are saying, well, this isn't happening exactly like this. Maybe there's something, um, you know, it, it creates a less, uh, pure argument for that trend happening. And so signal to noise ratio encapsulates that, uh, the higher that ratio, the more, uh, the more clear something is the lower that the more noise that there is. Yeah. Got it. No, I, th I think they're really helpful frameworks because I guess, as you said, to, there are different or varying levels of subjectivity throughout all of the, the signals and trends referenced throughout the book. Um, it kind of almost irrespective of that, if you're trying to bring some quantifiable measure to each of them, then that in turn is useful regardless of whether you agree or disagree with you, D disagree with the outcome. At least you've got a starting point to then try and gauge what impact you think it's going to have. So I certainly, when reading through the book, found them really useful. With that in mind then, we've set the context, I think, well. So let's move on to the first theme that I'd like to discuss today. It's worth referencing that the the, chap uh, the book is uh, split into chapters. We're going to focus on the fourth chapter, which is technological innovation. I've picked out two themes from that. The first is space or space business. Um, now, this is a, a theme that's evolving fairly rapidly. Um, but what, what are the key kind of factors fueling demand for space-related products and surfaces? What are, the, what are the key tailwinds in this space? So I think this is an interesting one because I don't actually think it's as much the demand, but this, the, the cheapness of the supply that is, is really fueling mm. it, right? Because space, I, I think there's a lot of things that you can go and do in space. The question is just how much does it cost to do that thing, right? And... Uh, it's only recently that we're, we're starting to see these developments from the supply side where the cost of 
bringing a kilogram of material up into space is just exponentially smaller. And that is enabling all kinds of different, um, you know, demand drivers, as, as you say, right? There, there's all kinds of demand there now because the cost has gone down and the supply is there to actually achieve some of these things. So I, I think that it's an interesting, um, you know, sort of supply demand equilibrium type situation. But, uh, but to your point though, um, you know, most people that look at this, the, the space industry kind of divide demand into to two areas. So one is called space to space to earth and one is called space to space. And so space to earth is, um, it, honestly, that's a lot of what we see right now, which is a lot of the satellites that go up. A lot of the things that we're, we're doing up in space right now are, are for the benefit of, uh, things that we do here on Earth, right? Um, telecommunications, for example, um, you you have a satellite that goes up and allows you to communicate with people around the world. Well, that benefits us here on Earth, and that's great. Um, but sort of where demand is going in the future is that there's going to be more of an industry outside of Earth, um, whether it's the ability to uh, to to create to three D print stuff um, in a spacecraft or to um, to you know, get materials, uh, whether it's metal or water or whatever it is to be able to, uh, to do activities out there. Of course, if you're able to procure that stuff in space, you don't have to actually launch it out of orbit and through the Earth's atmosphere, which is, you know, the biggest hindrance of, um, of launching stuff from here. And so in theory, it can be much, much cheaper. So there's kind of those two, um, broad areas. And, and as I mentioned right now, it's, it's mainly, the industry is mainly space to earth. It's, it's providing stuff for people here on earth. It's a lot of telecommunications. It's a lot of, um, earth observation. Um, it's, of course there's uh, military demand there to navigation and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's just really, um, that's, that's really just, uh, the, you know, the tip of the iceberg as to where things are going in the future though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and perhaps the most compelling investment opportunity is when those two themes or trends do start to converge, you know, space exploration converging with 3D printing will present undoubtedly a very interesting investment opportunity. But if we kind of take a step back and, as you say, kind of focus, which the book successfully does on the more mature themes or signals, ones that kind of are less uh, speculative, if we can put it that way, um, the, the book, or at least this chapter, focuses on satellites as kind of its key space technology application. Um, and there is uh, an infographic in there that depicts kind of the the breakdown of the various applications of satellites that are being used most right now. Perhaps you can talk us through that. What What is the, the split of these, these applications at the moment? Right. And, yeah. And so... Um, in signals, uh, again, we're focusing on trends that have, have started and they've been happening over a period of time where um, it's clear that, you know, this is turning into something that's uh, that's really important. And so what we use as our signal here is satellite launches um, because those have been increasing uh, very consistently over the years. Uh, and obviously you have the emergence of companies like SpaceX and, and, and uh, similar companies that can um, that can do extraordinary things there. And so in the book, we, we broke down uh, the, basically the satellite industry as a whole, just to look at major purposes, major players, um, and uh, like why, why are companies and countries launching these satellites? And so the, the most sort of 
brief overview we can do is we'll, we'll start with by country, uh, simply about, um, about half of satellites are uh, U.S.-based companies or U.S. Uh, government satellites. Um, China is next on the list with about um, 13% of, of those satellites. And then it goes Russia, UK, Japan, and then others. Um, but China, Russia, UK, and Japan all together add up to about 27% of, uh, of what's up in space right now. And, and in total, that's around, I, I believe there's around 7,000, 8,000 satellites right now. Um, if you break down the purpose, about 54% of satellites are commercial, and then you go into uh, government and military and, and civil and, and some that are combinations that have commercial but also government or military purposes, for example. Um, but the key thing to know is that the majority of satellites are, are commercial in purpose. Um, and then if you look at the major commercial players, I mean, you have uh, SpaceX, Planet Labs, Spire Global, um, Iridium, OneWeb, which is a UK company. Um, these are these are companies that uh, have the most satellites. Um, one of the biggest changes that's happened here, though, is um, obviously uh, constellations of satellites have been become very popular over the last uh, few years, and um, and we know that companies like SpaceX have been launching more and more satellites. And so the very most recent data, which we, we published a visualization on uh, on Visual Capitalist, was actually that SpaceX itself now has the majority of satellites in orbit. It has around 50, exactly 50% of satellites in orbit right now. Of course, many of these are tiny, uh, like really small satellites that are all part of this constellation. So that's not to be sort of confused with their their power or anything like that, but um, they currently have the majority of, uh, of satellites in orbit now. Yeah, really interesting. And, and while we're on SpaceX, then they've, um, and this was something again referenced in the book, that, but they've done significant work on kind of the reuse, reusability of rockets, um, similar to actually a company called uh, Rocket Lab, which you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, we spoke to their um, their CFO um, end of last year who uh, was kind of drumming up the um, the importance of reusability um, uh, because obviously that massively changes uh, the launch economics, uh, which in turn means that they can operate more cost efficiently. Um, and again, from the investment perspective, that starts to make a more compelling investment case further down the line. But if we kind of take a step back again, how, how important is rocket reusability as a sub-theme within the overall space? Well, I mean, it's, it's, as you alluded to, it's, it's an incredible development, right? And if you, I mean, think about it, if every time you had to use your car, you had to discard your car after your trip, right? I mean, it's, um, it's a silly world. Um, but it, that's, that's the analogy, right? It's like, um, it's such a, such a fundamental and crucial development that it's, it's hard to understate its importance. Um, uh, or overstate its importance, but in any case, it's um, yeah. It allows you to to go and do many multiple missions. I mean, and uh, that brings down the cost base by uh, a massive uh, percentage, and um, and that's what brings down the cost of bringing a kilogram up into space. And if you bring that down, and so I've seen estimates that um, that the latest uh, the SpaceX ship uh, basically is. I think it's five or six, maybe almost to the magnitude of basically 10x cheaper to bring stuff up into space than it was, 
you know, 10, 20 years ago. And um, when you think of sort of that 10x product development, um, where it kind of changes an industry, I mean, this is the this is the perfect example of it. And that reusability is a key tenant of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to finish on on space, then we'll reference a couple of those uh, metrics that we discussed at the at the top of the interview. First, then, let's let's discuss range. You know, if if we look at this signal, this theme as a whole, what is space's range? Do you think, or what does it say in signals? And then perhaps we can open up a discussion on that point. Yeah, so we have it as a signal range of of three out of five. So. It's not something that is going to impact every single industry, at least in the sort of medium term. Um, I mean, I think it will have impacts on society and culture, right? Um, I, I think that uh, from that perspective, I, I think um, the more that you do up there, the, the more it changes how humans think of our, ourselves. Um, but at the same time, space is more wide ranging than one might think. Um, there's some really cool developments that are happening in space right now. As an example, um, being able to either 3D print or to create sort of the active ingredients of pharmaceuticals uh, in a zero-gravity environment are, are two things that are starting to happen up there right now. Um, 3D printing is interesting because uh, if you can do that, successfully, you can actually um, go and create anything that you need up in space while you're up there rather than having to, to fly it up from here. Um, so, you know, they're already starting to 3D print small items and, and things like that. But what if you could 3D print uh, a ship or components to, to ships, right? Or what if you could um, 3D print a satellite up there or whatever, right? There's all kinds of um, interesting uh, things where this is going. Um, the the other weird thing about that is that um, when you 3D print something here, for example, you have to take into account gravity when you build an object, but there you don't. And so you actually can create stuff with totally different structures. Um, and this is actually the same um, aspect of, uh, of creating active ingredients of pharmaceuticals. Is a, so, um, you know, this isn't my area of expertise, which is an example of what's happening up there. You can create far better, I think, protein crystals up in space than you can here. And those are active ingredients in drugs. And so companies are actually uh, using, uh, you know, space as a laboratory to create better drugs up there and then to use those materials or those, those crystal structures to build better things here. So even though space seems kind of esoteric and, you know, way, way out there, I think, as you said, I, th I think there's going to be some convergence where, um, where different industries and space are colliding and, and they are impacting us more uh, down on earth. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that kind of biopharma application of 3D printing in space is something that we spoke to Rocket Lab about um, prior, prior to the Christmas period. So uh, again, I'll link that uh, episode in the episode description if anyone wants to get more detail on that. So to, to finish then, two questions. One, just following your answer there, you mentioned sort of medium term. I think it would be useful if we talk about the the time horizon for each of the themes that we're discussing today it, is there kind of a set time horizon that you're using throughout signals or does it differ theme to theme um yeah i think our 
we don't specify a specific, like a, a time horizon specifically, but I, I think that if you look at the signals that we present, we're usually looking at, um, when we, when we define something as a signal, we need to see significant years of that thing happening before it uh, can become a signal. And so often that time period is at least 10 years. Um, the aging thing, for example, has been happening for, you know, obviously for centuries, um, only really picked up more recently. But, um, but, but yeah, many of these trends are happening over, over decades. And so when I'm thinking medium term for, for space, um, I, I'm thinking within the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. Um, yeah. Because I, I think that there is a lot of things that are exciting happening um, in space. It's just that it, it's kind of like um, if you follow um, pharma or other scientific fields, it's always like mm. this thing can happen in principle, but now we need to figure out how to actually do it at scale uh, in this in this like complicated environment, right? So I think what people are going to see over the next ten years is you're going to see lots of exciting news of oh we made this happen, you know this this next thing is going to um, you know change how uh, we do things up there, um, that kind of news. But the big events, the you know. Uh, the equivalent of the the Mars landing and things like that, that are obviously these things that we're all looking at in, in the distant future as like, wow, we could eventually do that. That's not going to happen over this, this shorter sort of medium term uh, timeline. But what will happen is we will take many steps to to get to those kinds of things. And, and I think that it is going to be really exciting. Um, but uh, but materially, that sort of space to space industry is only going to just start developing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to finish on space, then uh, signal to noise ratio for for this theme. What what have you got this one at? Yeah, so so we have it as um, four out of five, which is a, a pretty high uh, pretty high ratio, which basically just means that it, it's pretty clear that um, that this is going to be an area that. Uh, developments are going to continue to happen in, and um, and it's unlikely. Uh, I mean, there are some things that could prevent it from happening. I suppose war is a big one, right? Um, if uh, if that happens, I think people are going to be. I mean, satellites are uh, vulnerable, uh, just like anything else up there, right? So th there there could be that, but. Um, yeah. From a from, otherwise, I mean, just the fact that costs of getting up there are, are dropping down so fast, it's hard to imagine a world where we're not continuing to um, explore what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, great. All right. I think that's a good roundup of, of space. Then I want to tackle uh, one more theme. Uh, before we return to the opening question. And that theme is gene editing and CRISPR. This is something, again, that we, we've spoken to uh, Ali Ehrman, uh, the genomics revolution analyst at ARC, uh, a couple of times, actually. So we can link those episodes in the description for a, a kind of in-depth uh, overview of, of what CRISPR is. And she gets, you know, in, in detail, because this is her space, into the technology, et cetera. But um before we move on, perhaps you can just give give us an overview of, of kind of what CRISPR is and, and why it's important just for anyone that hasn't heard of it. Absolutely. So so CRISPR is actually a, um, 
it's a defense mechanism. Like I'm not, this is not the, uh, not the, the science as we think of it today, but this is where it comes from. Um, it, it's actually a, um, defense me- mechanism in the immune systems of bacteria and single celled, uh, you know, organisms. And basically it's, it's kind of cool. It's, um, it's basically a way for them to, um, to recognize previous viruses and things that have come into their cell and CRISPR allows them to identify that. And then to, once they identify that, um, that, you know, DNA, they're able to go and, uh, chop it and get rid of it. And so basically what researchers have done and and why the whole system is named CRISPR Cas9, um, in sort of the, the realm of science and technology is basically humans have been inspired by uh, what bacteria have done here. And we've basically created our own gene editing system based on these ideas and based on this framework, using the same protein to, to cut with and all that kind of stuff. And so basically what it allows us to do is it allows us to, um, to go in and uh, to find a specific piece of DNA, uh, chop out the part that you don't want and put back in the part that you do want. And what that allows you to do, I mean, it allows you to do many different things, but uh, at its most basic level, it allows you to edit that gene uh, in the way that uh, benefits you. Um, So whether that's removing a, um, a heritable gene that is going to cause a problem for a person or whether it's genetically editing um, agriculture, uh, you know, different, uh, fruits or vegetables or, or whatnot. There's uh, obviously a bunch of different ways to, to use this technology, but, um, but at its most basic level, I mean, this is a, um, this is something that has been sort of theorized and that we've thought about for a long time, but this just makes it so easy and fast and is, is very reliable to actually edit genes, uh, at some sort of scale. Yeah, absolutely. And um, again, the graphic in the book points to multiple applications ranging from medicine to biology to biotech. And then within that, you've got, as you said, sort of ag tech, agricultural, um, kind of uh, altering the makeup of agricultural crops. You've got genome surgery, as you said, you've got the uh, altering of um, drugs uh, in drug development. Um, But if we, I mean, those are sort of the current or mooted application the scientists are looking to in the future. But how about how about now? How is this actually being used in, in current times? Yeah, so it's it's actually this this last uh, the last couple of months were actually really big for CRISPR. Um, just in December, I believe there was a the first um, the first drug approved to use, um, or the first, I guess. Uh, treatment, uh, using it for, uh, sickle cell, um, which, which is a, um, a disease that's, ba- it's like, it's pretty rare, but basically it makes it so that your blood cells, uh, form in the wrong shape and they, you know, start clotting in places where they're not supposed to clot and creates a lot of pain for the, the, end uh, the, the uh, the person that, uh, that has it. And, um, I'm not sure why, but, from when you look at the literature in terms of companies that are working with CRISPR, it's it's been a primary focus for many different companies to develop um, to develop treatments for sickle cell, and so I'm thinking that there must be something about it that's very fundamentally, 
you know, fairly easy to tackle from that gene editing standpoint. It must just be there's a simple gene that just needs to be removed, and then all of a sudden your, uh, you know, your your cells are forming normally. Uh, in any case, the first uh, treatment was approved just in December uh, in the U.S. by the FDA. So, um, you know, this is um, this is really. Uh, great to see the, the first sort of treatment come through and be approved by regulatory bodies because to me that's a signal no pun intended that there's going to be other things coming down the line and for much uh, broader and more wide-ranging diseases over time um, and, and again that's a that's a pretty rare and um, and straightforward application of it but we're getting to the point now where we're going to start seeing it uh, in many different areas as well yeah yeah absolutely no i saw that sickle cell news um yeah i mean probably one of the most kind of mooted or anticipated potential applications of this is within the treatment of, of cancer you get another kind of convergence i suppose with this theme and immunology um to, to a wider extent um, and then obviously oncology as well but like if we were to sort of speculate i suppose for for now is that how scientists and people within the space are thinking about CRISPR and gene editing in general? Is it supposed to be this kind of panacea to these massive, uh, massive kind of diseases um, that obviously a large proportion of the population do have versus are obviously a more esoteric um, uh, disease uh, that you mentioned there in sickle cell? Yeah, so scientists, I mean, they're thinking about it in many different ways. Um, but with, within the, uh, within the health space specifically, um, I've seen a lot of literature of, of cancer being the target. Um, and, and they're, at, they've actually had some initial successes in that area as well, uh, over the last uh, year or two where they've, uh, especially working with the, with T cells, which are, um, T cells are basically a type of white blood cell that um, is is part of your uh, defense mechanism in, in terms of uh, stopping uh, intruders in your body, and they've been able to use CRISPR on these on T cells to be able to get them to target uh, cancerous cells, um, and, and so they've done. I think the last that I read is they did sort of three trials with with different uh, people doing this. Um, and um, it's not, uh, they, they didn't implement this process throughout their whole body. They were just basically testing it to see if it worked, but the results have been very positive. And so that now the question is obviously, how do you do that at scale with, um, with you know, many different people and, and many different types of cancers? Uh, obviously, every type of cancer is a little bit different. Um, targeting a different part of your body, creating different kinds of tumors and things like that. So there's a, a ton of work that has to be done there. Uh, but there's also, I think, 10 million people die from cancer every year. So, um, so you know, there's uh, obviously a massive impact that could be made uh, from that. Um, but yeah, that's just one one area within uh, within medicine, and and there's obviously uh, many others that are are being targeted uh, with CRISPR, and, uh, and and then at least for for me, I think many of the most interesting applications are are even outside of um, outside of medicine. I mean, imagine being able to uh, fr from the perspective of 
Uh, you know, obviously we want people around the world to have nutritious, uh, quality abundance in their food. Well, um, CRISPR is your way to get there, right? I mean, you can take, um, you can, you can look at, uh, food and, and create super nutritious, delicious, uh, crops that are creating with as much abundance as possible. Um, and I mean, that's just, uh, to me, such an and they're and and they can be resistant to pests, um, but just so interesting of the potential applications of that. And it's a little ways down the line, but um, but but stuff like that or uh, or, or CRISPR, um, even in material science, being able to uh, to create new materials that we've never created before. Um, it's just such an interesting technology. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and to, to kind of finish on that technology, then you mentioned its potential impact. Perhaps we can finish like we did with space on the signals range and the signal to noise ratio. So how about the range first? Yeah, absolutely. So we have CRISPR as, as basically tops on both of these measures, uh, signal range and signal to noise ratio. Uh, from a signal range perspective, I, I think just what we, we talked about sort of highlights um, just some of the areas where it's going to be. It's not just in health or, or gene editing uh, within the, the context of, um, of you know, uh, limiting disease or, or anything like that. I mean, uh, we talked about its applications in agriculture or material science or um, any of these other areas. So in terms of signal range, in terms of what it's affecting, I, I think it's safe to say that our lives are going to be continued continually impacted by this technology going forward in many different ways. And, um, you know, I, I think in 10 to 20 years, it's hard, to, it's going to be hard to imagine the world without it. Uh, and so that's how wide ranging it is. Uh, signal to noise ratio. Um, I, I, we use for our signal in this piece, uh, basically the cost of sequencing a human genome. And to me, this is really interesting because it's actually, happened at a speed that's much faster than Moore's law. And so when we're looking at, um, you know, when we're talking about uh, sort of the um, exponential nature of technology and things like that, we're often talking about Moore's law, but this actually happened, um, you know, faster. We, we went from um, estimated it was going to cost, a, you know, it cost in 2001, $100 million to sequence the human genome. And now we're bringing that cost down to less than $1,000. And, um, and that just kind of shows you the rate at which advancements are happening in this industry as a whole. And, and that, of course, is not CRISPR gene editing itself, but it shows that even in 2001, uh, it was a massive endeavor just to even uh, to know, to be able to like process what a human genome looked like. And now we can do it for super cheap. Um, so that shows you the speed at which this is moving. And so from signal to noise ratio, uh, we think this is very clear. Uh, and there's, there's not much, uh, that we've seen that goes against it. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And, and the perfect segue, I think, to return to the opening question, which of course was addressing the exponential growth in technological innovation. Um, again, you had a really interesting graphic in, in signals that looked at um, how quickly new technologies have reached 80% adoption. Um, perhaps you can talk us through a few examples to help illustrate this point. Yeah. And so, um, so in terms of, uh, 
technology adoption. So there's a couple of, um, there's like a timeline that we have in the book. And then we also have sort of a breakdown of, of, of when things received basically 80% adoption, which you would consider to be sort of mass adoption. Um, the timeline portion of this uh, is really interesting. If you think about major developments that happened over history, um, the printing press, telegraph, steam engine, telescope, light bulb, telephone, car, these all happened many decades away from each other. And sometimes there's only sort of one major development per century that was happening. Um, like the, um, whether it's like the invention of the toilet or the invention of the steam engine or, or whatnot. But what's cool is that once you get into, uh, the, you know, uh, the 1900s and beyond is that these start happening much in much more rapid succession. Uh, you have the radio, then you have the airplane, then you have rocketry, you have television, computer, nuclear power, all of these things happening very fast. And then when you get to today, now you're talking about um, an even more compressed timeline. Um, and this is really, you know, where you start to see the results of that exponential technology. Um, the Human Genome Project, which you were just talking about, or whether it's the invention of uh, social media or the iPhone or the Large uh, Hadron Collider or CRISPR, all of these things have been happening in just the last, uh, you know, 10 to 20 years. And if you think of that in comparison to what was going on in, for example, the 1800s or the 1700s, it's just a completely different speed at which things are happening. And from the... Um, the aspect of it's not just the invention of technologies that's happening. It's also the rate of adoption that's happening. And, um, if you look at, uh, if, if you go back to when the first telephones were invented, it took actually 75 years for 80% of the U S population to gain access to, uh, to telephone technology. And of course, if you think of it, there's tons of infrastructure that had to be built. Uh, you have sort of the last mile problem there where, yeah, it's easy to get telephone access to sort of the the biggest population centers and stuff. But what about the people that live, you know, 100 miles into the woods or, or whatnot, right? And so uh, it took a lot of money and a lot of capital to, uh, to get there. And um, the automobile took about 56 years to reach 80% adoption. But now you move into modern day and you get to the internet, 22 years to mass adoption, the smartphone, about 12 to 15 years. Um, and then when you get to software, it's even faster. I think um, ChatGPT hit uh, 100 million users in less than a year, right? And so um, so things are much faster and the adoption rate is much faster now. And so those two things together um, give us a very different uh, world that we're living in than our, our ancestors. How does the technology sector's size and value today compare historically? Yeah, this this is um, a great uh, connection point to financial markets and to uh, and because if you think of what financial markets are, it's basically us ascribing value um, to the cash flows of of certain sectors and businesses. And if you go back to 1990, which was um, you know, sort of the beginning of this this really big shift in terms of um, of when things really we started really feeling that acceleration of technology. Uh, the transportation sector was actually the biggest sector in uh, in the U.S. stock market. For example, um, other other areas like um, 
like communications and, and technology, the, the ones that are now the biggest today, were actually um, only about together comprise about 5% of the, the overall stock market. And so, and, and this goes the same with um, companies. If you think of the largest company by market cap, for example, um, it used to be, uh, you know, General Electric, or it used to be, um, uh, Exxon or, you know, one of the is a big oil company or a big, um, you know, industrial company or something like that. And then, uh, in more recent times, you're talking Microsoft or Apple, um, you know, these, these companies basically came out of nowhere, um, and were never the technology was never the largest, uh, you know, market cap, uh, company, um, in, in the U S as an example, until only the, the, you know, until Microsoft came around actually. So, um, so yeah, the, the composition of the stock market in general has changed a lot. Um, technology is, is now uh, front and center and, um, and yeah, I mean, some industries have not changed much. Um, finance is still around the same size of the stock market. Um, you know, things like, uh, consumer staples and industrials are still, you know, more or less the same size, but, uh, it's really been technology and also healthcare that have, have grown, uh, in terms of size in the market. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. I'm glad we were able to bring it back to that sort of investment application, uh, particularly with listeners in mind. Um, I wanted to finish then and we, we asked the same question or a similar version of this question to all guests that appear on the podcast. Um, we ask them for their next big idea. It's the name of the show. So this could be an emerging theme industry or technology even that you're particularly excited about or something you've read recently. What, what springs to mind? I'm excited about um, data discovery. I think that we've all sort of universally, uh, we, we've all agreed that, um, you know, obviously data is a massive uh, asset for companies uh, that, that they can use and, and things like that. But I, I, I think that there's this vast world of data that is all, um, it's not put in one place for people to access and discover it. Um, and so I'm obviously, I, I'm talking my own book here, but, um, but I, I think that that's, I think it's a big opportunity socially as well. Yeah, really interesting. I think a fascinating insight to end on. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Mm-hmm.